to Modern Animism Radio. I'm your host, Laura Giles. Thanks for tuning in. One of the things you always hear me talk about is how animism is a lifestyle. Your beliefs show up in how you talk, how you spend your time and money, and the choices that you make. When you're making the switch, sometimes there are things that you do because that's what you learned or that's how everyone else does it. And I want to challenge that today by talking with Brian Starling about what women need to know about being women. Being a woman is a natural process, but you might be surprised at how much you don't know about it and just how divorced we are from nature. Now, I'm going to tell you about it, but first let's acknowledge the elements and ancestors. I acknowledge and thank the element of earth for the firm foundation under our feet, our connection to the land, our food, our bodies, and all the sensuous delights that come with being human. I thank and acknowledge the element of air and ask that you help us to communicate clearly, hear with detachment, inspire, and be inspired by everyone we connect with. I acknowledge and thank the element of fire for warmth, energy, power to keep us growing and expanding. I ask that you give us responsibility so that we don't burn ourselves out or become overcome with enthusiasm. I acknowledge the element of water and thank you for helping us to go deep into our hidden places and purify what we find there. I acknowledge and thank our loving, helping ancestors from the human, plants, animal, and mineral kingdoms. And I thank you all um, for the help that we receive that is seen and unseen. As always, I send gratitude to our listeners. And if any of our content inspires you, please consider donating to the program. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Pan Society. Please also reach out with your comments. They let us know what resonates or what doesn't resonate with you. And if you want to join the conversation, you can always join us on our private Facebook group as well and be part of the discussion. You can also show gratitude by giving us a high topic um, by liking, commenting, and sharing our posts on social media. So welcome, Ryan Starling. Hi. <laughs> so I know we've talked to you before, but it's been a really, really long time. So for people who maybe heard that, but it was a long time ago, um, or maybe don't even know who you are, can you, can you show your background about um, what, what's your passion and what is your way of shining in the world? My passion is helping women have empowered births and pregnancies, and I like to think that I shine in that by offering them a safe place regardless of maybe previous traumas or other issues so that they feel 100% able to be themselves to ask for what they need and find it in ways that empowers them and not just makes me someone who helps them. Do you have a story that kind of led you to that or, or like a, maybe a tragedy in your own background or something like that? I have a lot of history with trauma. Um, I have complex PTSD and did not grow up under the best of circumstances and was just really disconnected from my body physically. Um, And then in my teenage years, several friends had babies in hospitals, and for whatever reason, they asked me to be there, watching them be treated very poorly for the most part, um, and seeing what little respect there was for such an amazing process and what their bodies were doing and going through really just kind of made me want to step into myself and help them do the same. Okay, that's pretty cool. I love it. (laughs) So, like, how, what, what is your experience? Like, how many births have you done? I started as a doula, um, and I have been in the field for about 12 years total. I've done a little bit of everything from childbirth education to birth doula work, and I'm currently working on my midwifery license in the state of Virginia. 
Um, I have attended just over 300 births now. Mm, that's, so you would certainly know more than I do then. That's why we're talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a scary birth story that you can share? Uh, he said scary? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or um, all something, something that people don't hear about every day. Hmm, I'm sure I do. Um, so we have, with my second preceptor, the one that I spent the most time with, um, she, I think she and I had over 100 births together, um, so she's definitely the bulk of my under-supervision work for sure. Um, she and I had a client who ended up being a repeat client who had her first baby at home because she knew the hospital just did not align with her beliefs and lifestyle and she worked really, really hard for probably a day and a half, and then her baby finally decided to be born and come earthside, and she decided to come not breathing. <laughs> so we worked on her. We are trained in neonatal resuscitation, and while we were working on her, even 911 put us on hold, which was terrifying, oh, wow. and I didn't even know that could happen. <laughs> yeah. So having to work on the baby and encourage the baby to come into the room and be with us and keep everyone else in the room calm as well, because at that point, you know, everybody knows that's not normal, even if you don't really know what's going on. So keeping everybody calm and centered and okay was a lot of work, and the baby ended up being totally fine. Um, she did go on, like I said, to become a repeat client of ours and had another beautiful home birth another beautiful water birth and everything was totally fine, but it was amazing to see what nature could do. We left as many things in place as we could. Baby was still attached to mom through all of our resuscitation efforts. Um, and that definitely helped us keep that baby with us and, and give that baby the best chance she could have. I know that some people, you know, you talk about natural childbirth and of course that's birth is a natural process. Um, but I think when people think of being pregnant, they automatically think, okay, well, I'm going to go to the hospital. And most people don't realize that hospital births are only, like, common in the last 50 years. And so mm -hmm. when you say home birth, they're just like, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. Um, what would you say to the person who is kind of there? You know, it's like, it's freaky to have the a birth at home. I, I don't even know anything about this. I would say that home is safe for the majority of people. It's perfect for women who are low risk, which more women fall into that category than they realize. Because like you said, birth is a natural process. If you can sneeze, you can probably have a baby. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of things that the hospital is really, really good at. And while some of that is treating risk, some of it is also creating risk. Um, so if you are someone who is even in a moderate risk category, sometimes there are things that we can help you do to bring your body back into balance to put you back in that low risk category. Um, we don't, it's not all crazy, you know, hippie stuff. We still do utilize technology when necessary. We refer out for testing if that's what mom likes. Um, we are not opposed to things like ultrasound, especially if we see something that maybe is outside the realm of normal. The goal of home birth is to have a happy baby, a happy mom, and both of them be healthy and completely within the realm of normal, low risk. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that home birth doesn't necessarily mean you're at home by yourself. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. you know, you can, have, you can have a doula, you can have a midwife. Um, can you tell us about what those things are and what, what, do, what do they do? What are their functions? 
So the doula is someone that could be at a home birth or a hospital birth. They are completely non-medical support. So they can do things like suggest childbirth classes or even teach them themselves in some cases. They can offer community resources, connections with moms groups, um, breastfeeding resources, that kind of stuff. And then in labor, whether in the home or in the hospital, they help with things like comfort measures, so soothing touch. We're not technically allowed to say massage unless they are also a licensed massage therapist. (laughs) Um, But anything that helps the mom just relax and feel better, make sure she's fed, make sure she's hydrated. Um, They can facilitate communication, which I don't find to necessarily be as necessary um, in home birth most of the time because your midwife, your provider then is the same person every time. So it's Mm -hmm. not one of eight or ten doctors that you're rotating through that you don't have a good rapport with. It's the same person. Um, So a lot Mm -hmm. of times they don't have as much to do in the communication part or advocacy part at home as they would in the hospital. And then your midwife is the person that meets all of your clinical needs. That's who's going to do your vitals, who's going to assess you throughout your pregnancy. Um, Most of us operate on the same kind of timeline as an OB and an office. So you'll see us, you know, once a month until you get toward the end. And then we see you every two weeks and then every week until you have your baby. Um, So all of your clinical tasks, if you need blood work, if you need ultrasound, all of that stuff is handled by the midwife. Yeah, so it's not like you don't get any care and then you just have a baby at home. I, you know, you do have care. I think people don't know, you know, and, and this is not my area of expertise either, which is why I'm talking to you. Um, but it's not like, you know, going back to the Stone Age and you're just working up until the time your water breaks and then you're by yourself. <laughs> right. Most of us carry things in our bag that you would find very much you know, in in OB's office. Most of us have a Doppler um, or Cetoscope or both. A Cetoscope is just a specialized stethoscope that doesn't utilize batteries or technology or potentially negative uh, sound waves or frequencies like the Doppler does to amplify the baby's heart rate during pregnancy. some of us carry urine dipsticks. Some of us even do our own blood draws. It really depends on the midwife and what she's comfortable with and what other um, certifications she has. But we absolutely have things with us to help, you know, do all of those things that need assessing um, throughout a normal pregnancy that you would find in an OB's office. Yeah, so it is it is natural, but it's just not, it's less invasive. You still have medical care. Absolutely. And most of that, too, is guided by the mother and family's comfort level. So if there are certain things that you would rather we not do, um, we've definitely had clients that don't want to utilize a Doppler at all. That if we can only hear baby with the fetoscope and that takes a little bit longer, they're totally fine with that. Most midwives are okay with you kind of guiding those decisions to determine how much technology you want in your care as long as we are meeting our state-mandated minimums for clinical monitoring. We're fine with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think some people don't consider this because they think that it's expensive. Does does insurance cover this? And, like, what are we talking about in terms of cost? Some plans cover us, but we are mostly out of network. Um, the state of Virginia in particular has two different types of midwives that they license, and that's part of where the insurance issue comes in, particularly in Virginia. Um, if you are a CNM in Virginia, you can practice in homes or hospitals, but homes have different regulations. So I have yet to see a CNM that does home birth with one exception. Um, she can take more insurance because she has different medical capabilities than the CPMs, which are only allowed to do home births in Virginia. 
So if you're looking more at a home birth and more of that mindset, most of the time CPMs are not covered by insurance. Um, if they are, it'll be at something like a 50% out of network rate. Um, the cost does vary a lot because we have those little patches like Northern Virginia that are much more affluent than the Hampton Roads where we are. Um, but I want to say the last time I looked, the average was about $4,000. And most of the time, because the midwives know insurance isn't covering this or it's only covering part of it, they have payment plans or they offer sliding scale fees to make that more attainable. Mm -hmm. So... Um this is not something that's within the economic reach of everybody. I think that most midwives work very hard to make that reachable. Um, I know that some do births for free, and I know that many of them are working very hard to make Medicaid more um, accessible from our end as well because of the reimbursements and Medicaid's red tape. So I think if you connect with the right midwife, it is. It really is. Okay, okay so you just really need to talk to people. Absolutely. Yes. Explain your situation. Be honest about what you can do up front. Some of them will even barter. You just have to have those conversations cool. and be honest about it. Okay. So one thing I don't think a lot of people know is that, so here in the U.S., we, we think that we have the best medicine in the world, but mortality <laughs> rates for uh, pregnancy, for somebody who's pregnant, which is a normal natural process, and baby, is really high. Um, am I right about that? Absolutely. We spend among we spend more money per woman and baby than almost any other nation in the world, but we rank 56th for infant mortality. We're down with Slovakia and Mexico. <laughs> any reason why? What do you think? A lot of it has to do with all of those interventions. If you walk into a place that specializes in engines for your car and you just need an oil change, chances are they're going to tell you something's wrong with your engine. So the hospital is a similar place. They are great for high risk, but they're also good at potentially treating you as though you're high risk when you're not. So sometimes in their efforts to be helpful to those that are high risk, they amplify the risk where there isn't any for someone else. Um, this comes across in our cesarean rate, which is well over 30% in the U.S. The targeted rate that the World Health Organization put out several years ago was no higher than 15%. So what that meant from them was that anything over 15%, we were not helping moms and babies, that we were absolutely doing more harm than good by performing unnecessary major surgery on these moms, potentially taking babies too early, and all of those things that cesareans come with. Um, so ours is twice what the recommended rate is, and that absolutely plays into our maternal mortality and morbidity, along with things like our guidelines for gestational diabetes, um, this standard American diet, all of those things absolutely play into elevating those risks and then the treatment of them in the hospitals. Yeah, I don't think people realize that cesarean, I think they're so common that people don't realize that that is like not something you just should be like, oh, I'm having a cesarean. You know, I talked to somebody who was 40 weeks. She's in the hospital. This was like a week ago. Um, and the doctor induced her on a Friday, and I'm 100% sure that he did it because he didn't want to have a baby on a weekend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And things like induction, you know, like you said, so if she's 40 weeks, that means she's at her due date. And we think, oh, okay, then it's fine because the baby is ready. But the more we learn about all these processes that happen at the end of pregnancy, we're finding that 40 weeks isn't always 40 weeks. 
there are some women that absolutely have babies at 41 weeks every single time. If your cycle is longer or shorter, if you had a, you know, a later implantation, all of those things play into it. And we have found now that when left to their own devices, it appears labor is initiated by the baby, by a chemical that the baby releases that says, okay, my lungs are ready and I can breathe and I can do all of these important things. So if you're inducing and your baby hasn't sent that signal, that's already opening the door for a lot of potential problems. The yeah. other thing with inductions is that it's a completely hormonal process. We use a synthetic thing called Pitocin. Your body's own version is oxytocin. And while they're chemically the same, oxytocin crosses the blood-brain barrier and Pitocin does not. And that creates several other problems in the induction process. The biggest physical problem is that another thing we've learned is that the closer your body and baby get to initiating labor and having this really awesome, like, symbiotic relationship to get things going is that your body generates oxytocin receptors exponentially as birth gets imminent. So if we're inducing, and again, all of the signals haven't been sent to say that the system's ready, you don't even have enough receptors to pick up the pitocin to cause the uterus to contract efficiently to have a progressive labor. Mm. So now you've caused multiple problems already. You're stressing the baby, you're stressing the mom, and neither is ready. That's not good. (laughs) I, I really do distrust nature. You know, even if I don't know anything about it, I, I just trust nature, and I think people are better off when they do. But Absolutely. Part of the problem, I think, with a lot of just how to be a woman naturally is that we don't know. Um, one of the reasons why women are so uneducated about their bodies and, and their natural conditions is that, and because we turn to professionals, is because we don't have communities of women. So, like, back in the day, you didn't have doulas. You, you just had neighbors. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and we would talk, we would talk and, and, you know, sewing circles, moon circles, whatever. And you would just know because you have this life experience. Right. So since we don't have that, or so few of us have that, um, what do you wish women knew about, like, let's say menstruation? So we'll take you through the whole cycle of pregnancy. Um, I wish they honestly knew how it worked, that you can chart it, that you can track it, that it can be used as a fabulous tool for regulating fertility and really taking charge of your reproductive health. There are so many things that it can tell you, even if it just changes, if it's irregular, that if you make friends with it, (laughs) that if you get to know it, if you keep track of it, and then, you know, what's different for you may be totally normal for somebody else but it's still different for you. So that can still be a clue that it's a very great informational like feedback loop for you to really know yourself and be in charge of your body. Yeah, I totally agree with that. What about fertility or infertility? Oh boy. (laughs) I think that people need to understand, first of all, that as mammals, we actually have really poor fertility rates in general, even in the best of health. Our fertility compared to a dog's heat cycle or another mammal's heat cycle just is not the same. So I think if people have a better understanding of our fertility in general, it helps kind of put things into perspective so that you can more easily practice things like conscious conception or conscious, you know, lack of conception. Um, Again, like knowing you, knowing what's normal for you, understanding that certain diets are going to be better for you and your fertility, um, like having an alkaline you know, body balance is far better for fertility than being acidic. 
um, understanding that all of those things play together, that it's all, all hormone regulated. So if you're constantly exposed to hormone disruptors like heavy perfumes and chemicals, or if you work in an environment like that where they're constantly on your skin and you're breathing them in, all of those things will wreak havoc, especially if you stack multiple factors like a less than stellar diet with a chemical-laden environment onto you, all of that's going to decline. But the good thing is you can change all of those too. <laughs> so really being aware of your surroundings and what you're putting into your body is really crucial for keeping that balance healthy. So any, so I'm always for all natural and do that first, you know, preventative medicine, <laughs> all of that. But is there anything that you would say to somebody who, so they've been trying to get pregnant for a year, two years, and, you know, pop into a fertility specialist without looking at those kinds of things. Is there any danger in that? I don't think so. What I've seen from most fertility specialists lately is that they absolutely want to see where your body is starting out. And so most of them are doing things like endocrinological panels to look at things like your thyroid, to check those basic hormone levels, to see if there's something that's, you know, out of whack that can be easily adjusted. Now that said, most of what I'm seeing is pharmaceutical corrections. <laughs> so I would use that information to then turn around and make good choices to see what you could do on your own to bring those into balance. Absolutely. Um, because as we know, most pharmaceuticals come with side effects. So it might fix your thyroid, but then it's going to throw something else out of whack too. So um, understanding what the imbalance is and how to correct it, but also maybe even what's causing that imbalance. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad first step, but I don't know that I would recommend following that chain exclusively if, you know, this is kind of more of where your mindset is. Mm -hmm. What about uh, racial or cultural differences? Do you find any anything that stands out um, either in childbirth or fertility or anything like that among women? Do the, does that even matter? It absolutely does, unfortunately. Um, we know across the board that black women in particular die and experience morbidity at three to four times the rate of white women. This stays true even when we level for socioeconomic factors. So if you take a white woman and a black woman with the exact same educational background, the exact same income, and as many of the same life factors as you can. They're both non-smokers. They both eat a similar diet. That black woman is still three to four times more likely to experience severe morbidity or die than the white woman. And the research has borne out time and time again that this is nothing the black woman's doing or not doing, but that it's systemic racism. So choosing a provider that is truly culturally competent and respectful of you absolutely 110% makes a difference. The next biggest factor is that women of color, so Asian women, um, Hispanic women, still die disproportionately compared to white women, again, when those same factors are taken care of. They are two to three times more likely to die than a white woman. So it absolutely matters. And finding a care provider that you feel listens, understands, respects you, whether it's your cultural practices, your skin color, that you came in with your natural hair, you know, whatever that is, and does not treat you differently, does not dismiss you if you bring concerns, all of those things play into whether or not you'll be on the wrong side of those statistics. So let me ask you this. Um, do you think gender in your provider has a makes an impact? I've not actually seen a good body of research about that. Um, and oddly enough, I think my experiences have been pretty well distributed. Um, 
off the top of my head, I can think of exactly one amazing female provider who used to be in my area and one amazing male provider, and then the rest are just kind of somewhere on the spectrum. So I think for the most part, while obviously there are some that are, you know, much better clinicians than others, I think it really does come down to finding what's comfortable for you. So if you are more comfortable with a male provider, that's totally okay. If you're more comfortable with a female provider, that's totally okay, too. I think it really just comes down to that connection, especially since birth is such a, you know, once-in-a-lifetime, even if you have 10 kids, you're only going to have that birth this once. Um, right. It's such a once-in-a-lifetime intimate experience that it's so helpful if you can trust your provider and feel good in the decisions in your collaborative care. So on that note, then, is there anything that you wish that women knew about accessing care? So it's important to find the one that you like, but do – I think a lot of people feel like, well, I don't have choices. This is who's in my network. Right. So any time you run into those limitations with your network, it's always worth a call to your insurance to say, I'm really uncomfortable with this. What are my options? They may not present anything to you, but the vast majority of the time, you probably do have more options than you think you do. Even if it's something where, you know, hospital birth is the only covered option and you look at home birth and you think, oh, my goodness, I don't have $4,000, talk to the midwife. Someone out there will work with you. And even if you are more comfortable in a hospital birth, there are bound to be options. It's very, very rare that people live in places where there's only one provider. Um, and even in those cases, then, I would say talk to the clinical manager. Talk to whoever oversees their department. If it's the only family doctor in town, be honest with them. Say, this aspect of your care makes me uncomfortable. The way you speak to me, you know, the way I feel dismissed when you do this. Be very specific in what bothers you and upsets you. Sometimes it really is just they're oblivious <laughs> or maybe they've gotten so busy that they're just, you know, not thinking about it and they're a little out of touch and they need to be reminded that, okay, you do 300 births a month. That's great, but this is my one. I need you to remember that this is my one. If you can't do that, please help me find someone who will and just be honest. Being your own advocate is crucial in finding the provider, but even then having a good relationship with them. I could be the best midwife in the world, and I'm still not going to be the best for everybody. I only know what you tell me. So yeah. if I'm doing something to upset you, but I don't know that it's upsetting you, there's only so much you can hold against me for that. <laughs> yeah, I think we always have to be our own best advocate because, because of that. You know, we are the only ones that know what's going on. Uh, in our skins, and that's kind of why we're having this podcast today is to help people to do that. Mm -hmm. So is there, uh, so when, for annual exams, are there questions that people should be asking that maybe they don't know to ask? Um, I would again say that if you are really familiar with yourself and your cycles and you feel that something's wrong, even if, you know, everything you can find on Google says, no, don't worry about it, it's totally normal, bring it up. Because if it's not normal for you, it at least deserves a note. Because if it changes again, that's still another clue that something's going on that may be worth looking at. It could be something as simple as a normal hormonal change related to age. But what if that's a premature change for you? All of those things still matter. So if it's bothersome to you, ask. If you don't understand, ask. Anything about um, sexually transmitted diseases that people maybe don't know about or should know about, ask about? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think the typical recommendations to be tested after every partner are good. However, I would also add that just being safe in general, 
I know, you know, prophylactics are not everybody's favorite thing, obviously, but it's still smart. People do dumb things. People have lapses in judgment, and it's always just a good thing to be better safe than sorry. That's another thing where really knowing yourself comes into play because if all of a sudden something changes, that could be your only sign. There are so many STIs that are asymptomatic, particularly for males, that it may not be that he wasn't trying to be sneaky, but he really didn't know he had anything. So knowing yourself, testing yourself, and having those things done frequently to make sure that you're not passing anything back and forth or that you're not, you know, unknowingly letting something just get away from you and cause more problems is absolutely smart. Okay. Is there anything about the birth process that um, people might not intuitively know about or not know to ask about? Um, I think birth is so individual, really, that so much of it will depend on your frame coming in and your perspective coming in. But I would say if anything gets uncomfortable at any point, that's absolutely something you should ask about. Um, If there are things that you know may be problematic, if you have a history of sexual assault, say, and so breastfeeding just kind of seems like something you don't want to do. It's not the provider's job to talk you into it at that point, but just so that they're aware of it, so that they can help if something comes up, you know, they're not like, oh, no, it's fine, it's normal, just do this. That they're aware of it and they can help you in a way that's comfortable. Um, And then also the other huge thing I think for me and one of the reasons I love home birth and stick with it and just what makes my heart go better, Pat, is that it's so incredibly powerful but so incredibly connective not just for you and your baby, but for everybody that's there in the moment with you. We know now from a scientific and chemical standpoint that at the moment of birth and just after, you release the greatest amount of oxytocin you will ever produce. And it's something like, uh, I can't even remember, but it's something crazy, like 10 times more than you release in an orgasm. And the because of that high concentration, it actually comes through in an olfactory way, meaning everybody in that room breathes it in and gets that same reaction with it. That's why people cry when they're at birth because of that huge release of oxytocin. And one of those differences between oxytocin and pitocin and why that blood brain barrier matters is that pitocin doesn't tell the brain, hey, you love this thing in front of you. This thing that you're looking at, all these people in the room that were here for this moment, you love them. You're safe with them. Oxytocin does. So there's such a rush that is often trampled on or just completely obliterated in hospital births because of all the things they do that interfere with that release that doesn't happen at home. That part of birth can still happen in a hospital, especially if you know how to advocate for yourself. But that moment is so incredible and you don't get any do-overs. So really make, Mm -hmm. yeah, making sure that the people there are the people you love and trust that make you feel safe, that you can scream if you need to, you can throw things, you know, you can say, oh my God, I'm going to (laughs) die because we do, we feel that way and that you're not going to be judged or that you're, you know, not going to be so closed up that you literally can't release the baby. All of those things are important. That happens. Yeah, it does. (laughs) So you touched on something just now. You said, you know, let your doctor know if you have a sexual assault history. Can you talk about how that might impact your birth? Absolutely. So sexual assault has so many manifestations and, you know, one case doesn't always look like another case, but trauma-informed care is slowly kind of coming into most areas of mental health practice and into 
um, obstetric and gynecological and midwifery care. And I do think it's absolutely crucial because if you were sexually assaulted, those are the same parts now that are utilized in birth. And some of the sensations are so incredibly strong and overwhelming and honestly painful that they can absolutely be triggering for memories or even things that you don't necessarily remember, but that your body remembers. You have a somatic memory of, even if you don't have a cognitive, you know, visual memory of. And so even if you don't remember saying to your provider, I have a history of sexual assault. These are things that I know bother me, or even if you don't know what may bother you, just letting them know so that they can be more mindful in their care so that while everyone should be practicing trauma-informed care, it's absolutely at the front of their mind while you're with them. Um, again, things like breastfeeding, you know, if that was something that was bothersome for you during your assault, that can absolutely be triggering to try to have a baby nurse, especially in the first days where it is often painful as it's an adjustment for both of you. Um, but also being mindful of things that people say to you. Um, one of the common birth phrases that always bothered me, even as a doula in the beginning, was just let it happen. That is not something I would ever say to someone if I knew they were a survivor. And it's not something I, I usually have in my vocabulary anyway, but things like that to be mindful of so that your provider knows. Because again, we can only do what we know is helpful for you. If we don't know something's detrimental, but it's, you know, quote unquote normal for everybody else, why wouldn't we do it for you? So if we know, yeah. hey, these phrases, these practices may be, you know, not in her best interest or not what works best for her, we can better serve you. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about aftercare that maybe is not common knowledge? Oh, that's actually one of my favorite things. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about having that tribe, that circle, you know, all of those people around you that just take care of things, that you just know them and experience them because it's normal, right? So that's something that we are so hugely lacking, especially in the U.S. Um, we yeah. get it so wrong so wrong. And it shows in our rates of um, postpartum depression and all of those kinds of things that happen afterwards. It's, you know, mom has the baby and everybody's like, oh, let me see the baby. And for like a week, everybody wants to be there, but they want to hold the baby. Hold the mom. Hold the mom. Hold the family. Bring her family dinner and ask what one chore you can do to be helpful. Wave to mom and baby and leave. Do a load of laundry. Do the dishes take her older kids out to do something special for them or just get them out of the house so that they can breathe for a little bit. Hold that space so that mom can mom (laughs) for that baby and get to know this new little person that just came here. Make sure she can heal. There's, um, again, that midwife that I worked with, she was a big fan of a week completely in the bed, a week around the bed, a week around the house. And the most other cultures that do a really good job of honoring postpartum have a 40-day rule, and that's closer to that, which I like. And it, you really need to be mindful of the fact that you, the placental site inside is still very much there. It's a very large wound, and it takes time to close and heal appropriately. So the sooner you get up and you're moving around and you're back to normal and you're thinking, oh, this is fine, I can do that, but your body's not thinking that inside. Give it time. Support yeah. the mom to do that. Bring her food, help her around the house, keep her in bed. That's it. <laughs> There's plenty of time for you to love on the baby. Baby's not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, any advice for preparing the body for birth? I know that um, I think it's still this way. I don't know. But 
you know, usually it's just like, oh, I'm pregnant, and then you get on prenatal, and then, you know, that's your your pre-baby self-care routine. Um, right. <laughs> is there something different that should be happening? <laughs> um, I absolutely love the idea of making sure that your body's in balance before pregnancy, and the reason is that while pregnancy is natural, pregnancy is taxing on the system. You, you know, your blood volume almost doubles. Your kidney output because of your additional fluids and the waste created by baby is also taxed. So you need to make sure that your body's in balance beforehand. So it's not a bad idea to go get a physical with your primary care and just say, hey, you know, can we check and make sure things are good and then address any root causes for anything that you know is off beforehand. Um, starting prenatals once you're pregnant, it's better than nothing, but <laughs> um, ideally balancing your diet to make sure that you're getting as much as you can from food beforehand to correct any deficiencies and then maintain healthy levels is absolutely better than, you know, keeping the standard American diet and then just adding prenatals on top. Um, yeah. And then even your prenatals, we're learning more and more about food sources and how nutrients break down and how they're metabolized. Um, some people, for instance, cannot break down folic acid, so it just builds up and becomes toxic in their system. So knowing if you're someone who does better with actual folate, which is the, the form we find in food, versus folic acid, which is the synthetic form, all of those things can help. Um, so choosing a prenatal that is food-based if you really need, you know, to make up those differences, um, choosing one that's high quality that is really going to be absorbable and usable by your body because otherwise you're just making really expensive pee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anything women should know about abortion or miscarriage? Ooh, all right. So it is really, that's another thing we get really wrong, miscarriage in particular, that we, um, I know several women who have had them, and I didn't know. I only found out because they came to me later as care providers. And so I found out as a result of their medical history and not as a result of friendship. And one of them I had a close enough relationship to that I felt comfortable asking, can you tell me why you didn't tell me this when it happened? We were friends. I knew you then. And she said, well, because it was early, so I didn't think anybody would care. So finding a way to honor your miscarriage, if you feel comfortable not telling people and then just kind of going ahead and moving on as if it didn't happen, that's fine. But if you're someone that would do better having people acknowledge that it was a loss, that this is something you're grieving, that's fine too. Both are healthy depending on your needs. So asking for the support and then finding people who can actually give it in the right ways, I think is so important. Um, and then the flip side too, abortion is very similar. If this is a decision that you are comfortable with to terminate a pregnancy, finding providers that are supportive of that, and then people around you that will be supportive of that choice as well. Reproductive health is a full spectrum. Not every provider is supportive of all ends of the spectrum. So making sure that you're with people that are on your place in the spectrum <laughs> that will offer wholesome supportive care is so important. And then making sure you have that support afterwards too however you feel, whether it's guilt, anger, or just 100% peace, having people that you can talk to about those things and be supportive in that is very important. Uh, anything we should know about sex during and after pregnancy? Totally healthy. <laughs> if you are experiencing a normal healthy pregnancy and you don't have any specific issues such as repeated infection to worry about, it's absolutely totally okay and actually really good for you. Um, especially orgasm, 
it helps tone the uterus. It stimulates all those little contractions and gets everything ready. It's great for bonding. It's great for keeping you and partner close together. Um, and every time you climax, baby just gets like lots of little hugs and little boosts of oxytocin, which is absolutely amazing for baby's brain development and all of their stuff too. So unless you have a very specific concern, which there are fewer and fewer of them that we know relate to what they call pelvic rest, <laughs> there's no reason to abstain whatsoever. Um, postpartum, while I do know many women resume sexual activities prior to six weeks, what always keeps me from saying that that's totally fine across the board is remembering that internal wound at the placental site. Your risk of infection is greater. Your risk of producing more bleeding is greater. Um, and because, you know, everybody's blood loss varies, you don't know how close you may be to a hemorrhage, especially if you've continued to bleed longer because you've resumed other activities sooner than you should have as well. So I do think it's important to wait six weeks wait until you've had at least two weeks of absolutely no bleeding, no spotting, no nothing to really tell you that that placental site is healed. Um, and then to resume activities slowly, make sure that everybody's comfortable. If you're breastfeeding, especially be sure to have lubricant on hand because the hormones necessary for breastfeeding tend to leave us a little bit drier, even when we're thoroughly aroused, nobody's doing anything wrong, but it is kind of a learning curve. Um, and then the most important thing that I think everybody always kind of asks me questions about is, will it be the same? Honestly, probably not. But a lot of women find that it's better, especially if they've had an unmedicated birth, because they are much more in tune with all of the muscles. <laughs> and if you've had a good diet and you had a physiological birth where you didn't have, you know, intramuscle tearing or anything like that, it's, this is what that body part is made for. So you don't have to worry about being you know, any damage or anything down there. It's meant for this. It's going to be fine. Just go slow. <laughs> okay. Um, I have most definitely had clients who knew nothing about how their bodies worked. I've also heard stories about it in the moon circle. Um, they even have this service on, or class, I'm not really sure what it is, because I, I didn't see it. I just heard about it on Goop that helps people um, with these types of things. So talking is something that we need to do more of. And what mm -hmm. would you suggest to somebody who's in this boat who doesn't know something? Because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So right. you might not even know what to ask. But So what would you, if somebody's listening and be like, oh, my God, this is so useful, where, where, would, I, where would somebody go for more of stuff like this? I would reach out to their doulas and childbirth educators in their community. Um, you can also always chat with home birth midwives. Many of us do well woman care. So we are, you know, very well versed in anything that, is normal female reproduction. So if it is outside of normal, you know, most of us will say, you know what, you're right, that does sound like something that maybe a specialist needs to take a look at. Here's some good people in the community to talk to and make appointments with. Um, there's so many resources, and while Google is phenomenal, Google is kind of like the textbook. So it's great for the average, but if you're not the average, that doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. <laughs> So having yeah. that bigger community pool to talk to, build that sisterhood. Um, lots of communities have things like birth circles where you can go specifically once you're pregnant to hear positive birth stories, um, to kind of bubble yourself, you know, and all of that good stuff with like-minded people. So finding that little tribe and that little village, the childbirth educators and doulas are absolutely a great place to start. Okay. So we talked about um, being natural women, and women are not reduced to our reproductive organs and functions, even though that's what we're focusing on. Um, <laughs> you can be a full woman without having a child by all means. I just you know, want to make sure we are clear on that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about the physical aspects of being a woman, but there's a mental part of us too. And I think that's really important to think about and challenge our ideas about what it means, what our thoughts about what it means to be a woman are. And if you grew up in the West, many of those ideas are influenced by patriarchy. And the mm-hmm. words we associate with female things like bitch and PMS and hag and dirty and, you know, and this idea that only young girls are, are beautiful or worthy. And if those are your thoughts, I would challenge you to change them to more uplifting ones. Like, you know, we're goddesses, we're womb warriors, we're crones, and our, our thoughts matter. So is there, do you ever address, like, the mental aspects of, of femininity or womanhood, or do you have any suggestions for that, like the ways that we think? Um, it comes up a lot. Usually in my particular field, it comes up in debates about whether or not women should return to work after they have their first babies. Um, some of us are raised more in the mom should be at home, and some of us either don't have that option or had working parents too. So there's that, you know, that challenge within us to be like, okay, well, which is better? And I'm sure everybody's familiar with the mommy wars. The answer is whichever is better for your family and your mental health. I absolutely know moms who are so much better when they are out working their nine to fives. It gives them autonomy, it fulfills them, and they come home and they're much more well-rounded and they're much more emotionally available to their children. I know moms who were devastated when they had to return to work and it absolutely impacted their relationship with their kids and then moms who are phenomenal to stay at home. So even just that aspect of none of those is any more feminine than the other. It's whatever works for you whatever fulfills you most and allows you to be the best you because ultimately the best you is going to be the best mom and the best woman anyway. Um, that's how I usually come across it professionally, but the we usually just deal with the mental part of, you know, what can you live with at the end of the day? What's going to mm-hmm. most support you? What is going to be most fulfilling for you? You know, are you going to be pulling your hair out, dying to have adult conversation and talk about things that pertain to the degree you worked six years to get, you know, or is this just a break for you? Is it empowering for you to say, you know what, this degree is going to be there when your baby's in kindergarten. I'll come back to it then. Right now, this is my priority, whatever that is. I think the ability to decide for yourself whenever, you know, economically possible is one of the most ultimate acts in femininity to say, I, as the goddess of this family, (laughs) choose to be home, or I choose to be our breadwinner and set this example for my children. Whatever that is to you, I think, can be ultimately feminine. Mm -hmm. And um, as whole people, we also have our intuitive body, um, which is also feminine. And I I think for a lot of women, I feel this for sure, we're pushed to think like men and be logical. Not that it's a problem for me because I think that's kind of where I, I live anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I think we dismiss the ways of knowing that can't be articulated and sometimes proven. You know, the, the um, I had a dream. I had a hunch. I had a, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm leaning towards the folk healing, the the soft stuff that maybe isn't scientific or, or isn't respected. Um any any thoughts about how to how to embrace that or approach that intuitive way of being a woman? I think that midwifery supports that wholeheartedly. So much of what we do is how do you feel about this? And so I think we are inherently good, I guess, at seeking that out and helping you open that door and then trust it once you walk through it. 
So if you can just start by, okay, why do I feel this way? And taking the logical part out of it. You know, I had a dream about fish because I was at PetSmart today. <laughs> Maybe that's not why you had a dream about fish. <laughs> right. yeah. um, trusting those little voices that speak up and say, you know what, I don't feel quite right about this. And then, again, finding people around you that honor that, that say, yeah, I think you should listen to that. Um, we have had clients in the past to just say, you know what, I don't feel like this is the best place for me to be at home. And we get to the hospital and we find very good reasons to have gone to the hospital. There was Mm. nothing clinical that, you know, the midwife or I could have diagnosed. There was nothing that she could pinpoint, but she felt that it wasn't right. And we listened and it was absolutely the right call. Certainly there are going to be times where we strike out, but I think the more you trust and the more you listen and can tune into that, the fewer you're going to strike out. Like <laughs> your body is yeah. telling you this for a reason. And the more you are in tune with yourself and know what's normal for you, the easier it becomes to trust all those gut feelings for sure. Yeah, I agree. So we're out of time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Modern Animism Radio. If you want more from Ryan, um, remember we do have the other podcast with her that you can find in the archives. And if you'd like to donate now to support our show, go to our website at pansociety.net. Be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified when the next podcast posts, which is on Wednesdays. And um, we are also on iTunes or Twitter, if that's your spot. So I'm Laura Giles, and we will see you next week. Thanks for being here, guys.